Welcome to the Wolf Admin Podcast. Today I had a really fun discussion with Dr. Mike Rothschild. Mike built Leadership OD, a consulting company that helps optometrists run their practice and develop their teams better. He's a captivating guy to listen to, and I always learn a ton when we speak. One of the things I felt particularly illuminating was our discussion on practicing plateaus and why that occurs. Please enjoy our conversation. And as always, if you want to get the most current episodes, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review. But first, please support those who support us. Today's show is sponsored by iCode Education. At iCode Education, we create and host high-quality, relevant, COPE-approved online optometric CE. We offer practice management courses from billing and coding, fee assessment, and chart auditing to clinical courses that focus on topics ranging from the anterior segment to the posterior segment to myopia control and neurological disease. Additionally, we partner with associations to help them provide their members and non-members with online continuing education at their own pace, on their own schedule. This allows our associations to generate non-dues revenue and provide a valuable service for their members who are allowed to obtain hours from distance learning entities. Check us out at iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. One more time, E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. about as I think about Mike Rothschild you know I don't know if you remember um, but the first time I met you I was probably a third or fourth year student in Oklahoma and I um, and you came to do a vision source talk uh, and it was a practice management talk and I think it was kind of um, maybe some of your Ritz Carlton discussion or although that might have been a little bit later I can't remember I would say it was 2006 2007 and what's always stuck in my mind about you Mike is that um, whether you actually remembered me or not, I always felt like every time I've mm. seen you since then, um, we were kind of old friends. And so I, I really appreciate that. And I've always appreciated kind of when I've reached out to you for different things like your perspective on telehealth, um, on the telehealth association, and with some of the things within Revolution that we were trying to work on within Nebraska, that you're always um, not just able to help, but really willing to help. And I appreciate that. Well, Chris, that means a lot to me, and I, I really do appreciate it. And I, um, I definitely remember your our conversations, and I remember uh, interacting with you. And I do feel like we're old friends. I, I got to tell you though that I do not specifically recall, um, you know, working with you as a student. But I, I do know that I remember several of our conversations and several of the things that we've we've worked on. But I, I just want you to know that it it really uh, makes me feel good to hear that uh, that you remember uh, me coming to your school because I've visited a lot of different schools and talked to students uh, about things that I feel like ought to be important to them and uh, things that I really want to focus on. So when I hear from a successful uh, practicing doctor that, that I admire, that I look up to and admire like you, and um, and you mentioned that that you that I I came to your school and said something that you remember many many years later and that it was impactful. That really is quite a reward for me, and so I, I appreciate you sharing that very much, and um, and letting me know that. I 
I've always felt it was important to to work with students and um, and sort of just let them know, you know, what's important and what's really going on out there. Students are so wrapped up in, um, you know, boards and passing tests and sort of getting one foot in front of the other. And um, and you don't really think about what it's what it's really like out there. So I, I just love to go have those conversations and have that. So thank you for sharing that with me. And you're um, welcome. And, and you're welcome. And bringing it back up again. That's very nice. Do you uh, so then, you know, kind of fast forward all these years, I guess I, I kind of want to start where, you know, my memory of, of things were. And so I think that co- sort of kind of spawns into how you developed or maybe at the time you were you're beginning to kind of conceive of leadership OD and the Ritz Carlton experience and those sorts of things. So let's, can we take a step back before we kind of um, revisit what you're currently doing and, and kind of um, give me perspective about what you were seeing at the time? Um, and, and what kind of started that fire in you to, to start leadership OD and, and those sorts of things. You know, it's funny that you bring it up and that we started this conversation about talking about visiting schools because my very first interaction with, uh, students was, I was, um, I was named the membership chairman for the Georgia Optometric Association. I was a new practitioner. And uh, just joined the GOA and trying to, uh, you know, make my place in in the state association. And uh, so I was was named the membership chairman. So my my goal was was to increase the membership for the entire organization. So I thought the best way to do that would be go to visit the schools. So I went to visit the schools that were close to Georgia, which included Memphis and uh, Birmingham. And so I, I went to those schools and I started talking to the, the Georgia clubs about what's going on in Georgia. But really what the, the students wanted to know most about was what was happening in my practice. And mm-hmm. so I started sharing with them some of my income numbers and some of the things that were going on. And I was showing them how quickly my practice was growing. And so I was, was bragging a little bit, you know, about how well <laughs> I was doing. And then Chris, what happened is my numbers, my income numbers started to level off. So about the the third year into practice, my growth had stopped. And I had been uh, talking about how great I was doing and sort of showing off to some of these people who were still in school. And I realized that, that I wasn't growing anymore. And I altered the graphs. I sort of hid the fact that I was not growing and, and went to these schools and basically fabricated uh, how well things are going in my practice. But I, it was at that point I realized I've got to find out how to run this business. I've got to understand what's going on in my practice because it's more than just going through the motions and continuing to grow. And, and so I, I took those Ritz-Carlton classes and, um, and learned how they ran their business and, and started trying to incorporate those lessons. And so it was out of necessity um, to so that I could be honest with people about how well my practice was going. And so I learned the business principles, applied them to my practice and started growing. Then it worked. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And so I got so excited in, in these lessons. And so I went back to the student groups and started talking about what I'd learned. And I realized that it wasn't just the students that were interested in it, but some of the 
the people who had been practicing a long time wanted to learn this stuff. And I realized that many practices leveled off business-wise from a business perspective very quickly. So it's easy to grow a practice for a little while and then it levels off. And so I started giving these lectures um, to everybody, to practicing doctors and to students, and it really started to resonate. And it was just that understanding. And I found personally that I started to grow, um, per, you know, from from a from a personal perspective. I enjoyed it so much. I enjoyed talking to people about the business aspect of their practice and how they worked with their staff people, and I enjoyed talking to staff people. And so I started looking for a way to spend more time doing that. And I was spending so much time doing it that it was hurting my practice. Mm -hmm. So Leadership OD came also sort of as a a point of necessity that if I'm going to do what I love doing, I've got to find a way to sort of turn turn it into a business. So I created Leadership OD. I I like the way that it sounded. I like the – that's really where my – my focus about practice management started was in building leaders within your practice. And that name just came to me. So I started sending a blog. The very first blog I sent was on the 4th of July. I don't remember what year, but I just remember that, uh, <laughs> that it, we tried to make it kind of a patriotic uh, themed um, concept and just started blogging and started lecturing and tried to turn it into a, a, a business concept. I might have rambled a little bit about that, Chris, but I really got kind of excited talking about it. It's good. No, no, it's that's exactly what I want. So I'll take a step back there and say, okay, well, when when you were thinking about um, kind of when your practice leveled off, uh, what were yeah. some of the the things? If you can recall, that maybe maybe it's not one or two things, but was there a couple things that you had implemented that really got you to shift your practice to shift within that? Um, once you kind of learn some of these principles that allowed you to take off again. Yeah. So, so what, what I learned basically from the Ritz Carlton is that, and, and I've learned since then that this is very common, usually in about the third year, a practice uh, can grow. It can continue to grow up until about that third year. And then it starts to sort of spin out of control. And what I have found is, is that that's the point where where processes need to be put in place instead of just the 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 primary decision maker being able to make all the decisions. Mm-hmm. So so what what tends to happen is is when you're a and I, I learned a lot of this from a book called The E Myth Revisited. Yeah. By um by Michael Gerber I think is his name. Um, so anyway, the, that, that book talks about how someone who, who begins a business, a small business, because they do something very, very well. Uh, and in our case, it's taking good care of the patient. So we get into an exam room and if we have a slow schedule where maybe we're seeing only a handful of patients a day, you can take really, really good care of those patients because you can take as much time as they need. You can answer their questions. You can understand mm-hmm. their insurance. And so since you have a small team, uh, maybe just one or two staff people with the doctor, you can take such good care of them. And word gets out that, boy, they really take good care of you. And so that business grows and continues to grow. And as you get busier, you start to hire more people. And those other people don't necessarily do do it as well or, or, or they don't do it 
as you would have done it. And so yeah. you have to begin to delegate. And then a lot of times when you delegate, you undelegate is what I call it. And, and that's by giving up a responsibility to someone and then taking it back because you're dissatisfied with the way that they performed that task that you delegated mm-hmm. to. And mm-hmm. so, so the, it sort of turns into a vicious cycle where you can't delegate because you're not a good enough delegator. And so what we have to learn as optometrists is we, we know how to take good care of our patients. We know how to give them the good care and be responsive. But when we get so big that we can't personally, we can't personally be responsive, we got to count on our team to, um, to give those same sort of responses. And the way you do that is by teaching them the proper way to, uh, to delegate and, and or to, to respond to whatever, whatever the result is. And so you've got to have really good processes put in place. And almost nobody knows how to do that hmm. because, um, because you just get in there, you do a good job, your practice grows, you ask for help or you hire help and you don't manage the team very well. And that's, and it was through that process. I realized that leadership is such a critical component of, um, well, and I had, had to learn how to be a leader and, um, and it's not, it's, it's not natural, I should say, the, the process of learning to be a leader. Did you think, so when, when you're doing that, sometimes it's, it's challenging because, you know, you, you, you have to, and I've had these conversations with multiple people that, that you're going to hear, you know, um, over the last few weeks and um, where it's sort of a, in how do you empower good people, right? So the first part is hiring good people. And then the second part is learning how to empower them <clears throat> so that they can make some of these, um, so that they have some flexibility with what your goals are to be able to respond on the fly, but still be able to um, implement what you want in a specific way uh, in, a, in an e-myth sense. So I, we've actually kind of talked about uh, e-myth over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, I, I, um, I wonder, I love your perspective on whether or not uh, the practice of of independent optometry can truly be emyth, or are there just some things that we can kind of cherry pick from that to make our practices better? Yeah, so so I think that the mo- I think you've hit on something that is 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 really really critical is how do you empower your team, and and it is it is one of those things that's that's a critical piece of this. And it's not, there's not just one answer. And unfortunately there are a lot of people who, who just want the the cookbook as I call it for, you know, how do you empower your staff? How do you properly delegate? And it, it just goes in, in a couple of different phases. And, but the biggest point is, is you just never stop trying. You just, you just dedicate yourself to having an empowered team and you continue to strive to make that team better every single day. And so the steps that I believe, Chris, are you start with um, an incredible vision of, of how you want your practice to be. I've, I've always I've had a, a, an opportunity to visit. I don't know how many practices, but just so many different practices. And, and they're all great in their own way. I've been in big practices and small practices and 
um, you know, practices that cater to the uh, to the most needy in a community and some that just sort of dedicate themselves to the, the highest levels of luxury. And so mm. so all of them really um, focus on what matters most to them. And, and, and many consultants give what, what I call like a, like a cookie cutter approach. Like all you got to do is implement these three steps into your practice and you'll be successful. And those bother me so bad because of how many different types of practices we have. So we all have our own vision of how we want our practice to be. And so I think that it's critically important for step number one in any sort of leadership development or empowerment development program is to first clearly define what the practice is that you're building. Whoever the decision makers are of that practice, whether it's the owners, like it typically is, or the office manager, whoever is empowered to direct this practice, to lead the direct or define the direction of this practice, they need to make it clear. This is going to be a high-end practice that focuses on delivering um, every aspect of eye care to the citizens of our community or whatever. Or this practice is going to focus its energy on the, the very uh, entry-level basics. We do glasses and contact lenses, and uh, we keep it at affordable prices, and, um, and we can get you in contact with um, people who deliver higher levels of care or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you got to make it clear, uh, number one, to yourself, but then you've got to share it with the rest of the people on the team. And, and so number one is defining it. Number two is sharing it, but then continuing to remind people of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is just whether it's meetings or whether it's, um, you know, email communications, just being diligent about making sure that everyone always knows what is the vision of this practice. The, the, the model that I like best of that is in another book called Setting the Table by David Meyer, and he's a restaurateur up in uh, New York. And he talks about, he uses it as a salt shaker. And he says, in the restaurant business, you know, everything on the, on the table has a place. And the salt shaker goes in the center of the table. And it's your job to make sure that it stays there. And every time somebody picks up a salt shaker, they move it from the center. And so that's, that's every task in your restaurant is sort of related to that. So number one, you have to let everybody know the salt shaker goes in the center of the table. And every time it drifts itself away, you have to do whatever it takes to move it back to the center. And so that's reminding your staff that's where it goes. That's uh, moving it when it gets there and understanding that it's going to shift from time to time and just mm-hmm. be, be diligent in replacing it. Uh, so that's, step that's one, key. I think, you know, I that? think sometimes I think that's key. I think you've got, you know, where where people think that you just are going to fix something once and then it's it's yeah. going to be fixed. And, and mm-hmm. you know, in our practice, uh, we've got a great team, just a great team. But it seems like every three months, it's something yes. that comes up that sort of kind of upheaves, you know, upheal, upheaval, a little upheaval in, in the systems. And, sure. um, and you're almost like, man, we shouldn't have to revisit this. But what you're saying is that, you know, it's sort of built into the cake, right? You're going to have to be able to, to put things back together. Not that they're falling apart, right? But, but there's just out of balance. And it's like, there's sort of this coming together 
to put things back. Exactly. And so if you expect, so the fact that you've recognized every three months, there's going to be some sort of upheaval, you know that it's going to happen. If you're on the watch out for it and you can see it coming and you know, okay, we've got a, we're headed toward upheaval. Before it gets out of control, let's do whatever it takes to correct that, to nudge it back toward the, uh, toward the proper place. So I'll tell you an yeah. example, Chris. We, in our practice, we determined that we would like for our schedule to be 80% full. Um, and the reason that we want it to be 80% full is we always want some openings for new patients. So we don't want to be 100% full because that means we're going to turn patients away. And we know that our established patients will uh, wait for us. But we know the patients who have never been to our practice, they don't wait. They don't, mm. they don't necessarily know that it's worth the wait. But our established patients do. So when we have an opening, when we have someone who calls and they're an established patient and we're already 80% full, we ask our friends, our established patients to wait. We push them back for two weeks or three weeks or whatever it takes so that when that new patient, someone we've never met, someone we've never heard of who may or may not show up, we want to be able to schedule them without overbooking our appointment. So it's not natural. That's not a natural way of thinking to turn away your friends so you can invite in a stranger. And so we put into our calendar about every three months, like you said, to have a conversation at one of our staff meetings about this very topic. And the reason is, is because we know that as a high service organization, our tendency is going to be to give whatever we can to say yes to our patients. And since this is a contradiction, it's a logical contradiction. We have to remind ourselves every few months why we do it so that we can uh, continue to do it or else that rule starts sort of fading away and it, it doesn't, doesn't work anymore. So then when, you know, as a, so this is a, a sort of an aside, but it, it leads to the next logical question of when do you determine or how do you determine once that schedule is too full, uh, when you're ready to bring on a new associate in your practice? So we have a practice that's uh, relatively rural. And so we keep ourselves pretty busy and kind of are always looking for good associates to join our practice. When we were actively looking for an associate, it took us over two years um, to find that person. And, um, and so we, our lesson from that was, is if we get someone, we can uh, hire them and, and keep them in, keep them relatively busy. However, not every practice has that same situation. Some people have associates coming all the time, but all, so my advice typically is I'm looking at that. I don't think that there's a magic formula for knowing how, when to hire an associate. But everybody that I've talked to who was investigating whether it was time to get an associate almost always was ready for an associate. I, I don't know anybody that's hired associates that they weren't able to keep busy. I think that typically we are slow to hire associates because we want to keep our books so full. We're, but I find a lot of practices, if you open the schedule, you can fill it up. So, yeah. so I don't think that there's a magic formula uh, to whether you're able to afford it or not. Um, you know, I don't, I don't really have a good answer for that. That's, that was a big, long answer to say, I don't know. Yeah. No, that's okay. I, I mean, it's just, 
I think, I think probably as I reflect on it, um, you know, there can be this tendency, like you're saying, to, to kind of want to hold off a little while longer and hold off a little while longer. And, you know, I always think if, you know, if you're booked out a few weeks, three, four weeks, then either you need to figure out a way, like you're saying, because you're going to be missing out on, on new patients and that's going to be missing out on growth. And so, um, <clears throat> so if you've, if you're booked out a few weeks, you ought to be, you know, I ought to be considering finding somebody and probably should have been considering earlier than that. But, but there's this sense, I think, among our profession of, of like, um, well, I'm, I'm booked out. Things are going to be great. Uh, and, <clears throat> and so, and there's always a, you know, a worry. You don't want to hire anybody that, that financially you're not going to be able to support over time either. That's the other concern I think people have. Um, That's definitely the concern. And I, I don't think it's a, uh, typically it's not necessarily a warranted concern. I tell people all the time, if, if I can't schedule uh, an appointment for three different times in the next two days in your practice, you need to do something. You got to do something, whether it's come up with some sort of strategy on how you schedule so you can open it up for new patients uh, or whether it's bring in an associate or whether it's increase your efficiency. So you're, you've got openings, but you got to have new openings in the next day or two if you're going to continue to attract new patients. If you're booked out three weeks, you don't have any new patients. Yeah. What's the pushback you get on that? If, if, if somebody was going to say, you know, Mike, uh, is, is there anybody that kind of has this, is there like kind of a consistent pushback that people get? Cause I, I agree with you. So I'm just trying to see what's the other side going to say on that, that, that you've, that you've heard. Uh, the other side is just going to say that I can't afford to, to pay an associate because I'm not making enough. And that's, mm. and, and if someone's booked out for, for weeks at a time, um, they're, they're losing money. And, and so sometimes there's just nothing you can do about it. You know, if you're, if you're seeing patients as fast as you're willing to, but if you just, if you just think about it and you just do the math, you know, okay, if, if we're booked out for three weeks, if we could eliminate that, then we could grow just, you know, a couple exams per day. And typically if you can convince someone that you can open up a couple of exams per day, you can realize that you can make significant amounts of money. So just let's just say that we're able to open up in whatever method, whether we increase our efficiency by adding a couple of exams a day, whether we bring in a, a new doctor who's able to see a couple of patients a day, and you just find out what your average income is per exam. So let's say that it's $350 average income per exam and you're only doing two new ones a day, well, that's $700 a day, that's $3,500 a week. I guess the math can continue, and you can start to see that simply by adding this, but if you're full as you can be, seeing as many patients in you, and you can start to see that most people wait too long to bring in the associate when, um, when it's time, and, you know, they wanna make sure that everything is safe, make sure that they're affording enough money, or, or bringing in enough money to pay for the associate. But that's really flawed logic, flawed logic because, because if they're already making as much as they can. So let's just think about this for a minute. If, if a practice is booked out three weeks, that, that indicates that they're seeing as many patients as they possibly can. They're booked at 100% for the foreseeable future, which is very comforting because you know how much that's going to bring in. But you also know that you can't grow until 
you're you're able to add exam spots to that. Mm-hmm. So you've got to create you've got to create opportunities for for new patients to come in, and that is how you can pay for the associates. So even if you increase your efficiencies by seeing more patients with the same staff, or if you bring in an associate to see them, it's going to bring in more money, which will help pay for the associate. Yeah. So it's it's like a it's like a chicken and egg situation. It, you're not going if you're already maximizing your income. That's not a way to calculate how much whether or not you can afford that associate. Well, it's kind of it's kind of amazing because you know when I when I talk about um, billing and coding and valuing your services so that you can figure out ways to add specialty services. A lot of times we see the same thing. Like people, um, you know, one of my my niches has become trying to help doctors understand their value of what they're doing and also give them perspective about. Okay, if I want to add this service, a lot of times when I talk to, to like, let's say it's orthokeratology, what a lot of times will happen is people won't add it because they'll actually say, well, I know if I see this routine patient, I can generate this much revenue. And by the time I, it takes me to learn this new service, I can see three or four patients. And so it's not worth my time to learn, but they're missing out on the fact that when they take the time to learn on the front end, uh, and build in the the uh, time value that they need in order to break even, right? In order to generate the same revenue that it, it's going to generate for their normal services, then you miss out on the fact that you've you've got a um, you know while you're learning the first five to ten cases might take you longer than what you want, so you might actually be what I'd say breaking even based on your um, you know your calculation of what your routine patients will generate you. But as you get better at doing that, it takes you less time. And so the time value becomes way greater in, than, the, than kind of your normal routine. So my point about bringing all that up is that if you look at the MBA statistics, um, the average OD per hour, OD per hour revenue, uh, you know, if you just take your gross, um, your, you know, your gross uh, receipts after your discounts and all that kind of stuff, on average is $405 in, in, in private practices or independent practices. So to, to, do the, to, to say that another way is if you're paying an associate $405 a day or $400 a day and your average is $405 per hour, then that's, and let's say that doctor was seeing two patients all day long, right? Uh, they yeah. could see them every 30 minutes, but let's say it was just two patients a day. They, they would break even on that, on that associate, on bringing in that associate. Right. It's, so it's it just, I mean, I, I go through all of that to say that it's just kind of crazy to me um, when you think, I don't know if I can do that right now. So what, what I think tends to happen to, to doctors who are in that situation, who, who are so comfortable that they don't want to add anything new, that's, that's all it is, is it's just a comfort level mm. with sticking with what you know. So you, so you just sort, sort of said it in the whole thing, you know, you said, I don't want to learn orthokeratology because I can see three exams, which I know how it's going to work. I know how much money it's going to make me uh, rather than learning something new. And, and, you know, I, if someone is, is ready to settle into what they're comfortable with and they build something that is going to give them a predict, if they like the predictability, then that is a perfect scenario. So if you're, if you're the kind of doctor that likes knowing what's going to go on, then having a full schedule booked out for a long time is great. Everybody knows how that's going to work. But the problem is, is that you're building kind of a, what I consider to be a prison around yourself, mm. you know, because it's, 
it, the only path that this is going to do, if you're not going to expand, if you're not going to grow, then you're going to see the same patients and, and it just little by little, it's going to be less. So you said the MBA number was, I forget what you said, what the average income, 405. Well, next year it's going to be 400. And the year after that, it's going to be 395. And that, that number, if you leave everything just like it is, is going to gradually just whittle down. And, um, and if you're okay with that, then that's, that's great. But it's going to be, it's going to be a, a classic story of a practice that nobody wants to buy. Mm. And, and the doctor is just going to have a hard time getting out of it. Um, so were, that's, go ahead, go ahead, Mike. I was just going to say, that's what I try. And when I'm in that situation where I'm trying to convince a doctor or a doctor is asking me, how can I get out of this spiral? I just say, you got to, you got to break out. And I just try to get them to see down the road where you're going to make a little bit less, less and less and less every year. And, and you're, you, you know, you're not going to have anything, but again, if that's okay, then that's fine. But I just want to help you see down the road that a little bit of discomfort now is going to create more opportunity later. So what, what do you, what is it that you want? Do you want the comfort or do you want the security down the road? Yeah. You know, I was talking to, um, when I was talking to Mick about a lot of this, uh, it's got to drive you, maybe not. I mean, I don't know. I, you know, I assume that you and Mick have, have become really good friends over time. And, and my, my sense is that, that you still have maintained that friendship over the years. And, um, but, you know, for me, uh, it, it kind of, when I think about something that seems so clear to me, um, and, and then it, it, it can be lost on some, it, it almost makes you, you have to kind of put past the fact that you might only reach 10 or 20% of, of your audience that you're talking to. So how have you, uh, you know, so most of the time people are coming to leadership OD and coming to the conferences and those sorts of things, they are already bought in. But when right. you go out and you, you talk to other people, um, what, what's your experience? Is it still that 10 to 20% of people that are kind of like, yeah, you know, I need to do this. I, I get it. And then how do you, how does it make you feel when you're like, gosh, look at all these practices that could be doing so much better. And they're, they're just ignoring these easy things that they could be doing. What, how do you get over that? You know, I just, uh, I've, I've got to realize that not everybody's like me and not everybody wants the same <laughs> things that I want. And so, so when I go out, you know, on the, with the voice of leadership OD, I like, I, I put a lot of energy into my presentations. I just love, uh, sharing with big groups of uh, doctors and staff, kind of what I have experienced, and and I, I I try to make that come through, and I try to make it an, an engaging conversation, and um, and I I feel like that most of the time, most of the people in the audience um, enjoy uh, having this sort of one-sided conversation with me. Then then the 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 presentation is over. And there's a handful of people that want to come up and they want to talk afterwards. Hmm. And maybe it's, you know, maybe it's that 10 to 20% of the audience who wants to come in that says, you know, I wanted to share something like that that happened in my practice. And, and they're just a handful. And I, I even get more fulfillment out of those people who want to interact and want to talk and maybe share an e email. And then about 10 or 20% of that group, they really want to engage and put the work in and they want to talk more 
and they want to stay in touch with with leadership OD and and maybe uh, participate in a um, in a membership program or you know hire me to come into their practice to work you know to to facilitate a retreat in their practice or something mm. like that. So if you talk about you know ten percent of the presentation group and then ten percent of of that group as the ones that really engage, those are the ones that have that ongoing relationship that really, really connect because those are the people that are willing to, to dedicate. So it's, it's what, it's the big group that likes to listen to the story about something great that happened. Um, uh, you know, one in 10 that like to uh, interact at some level and share those experiences and one of 10 of them. So mm-hmm. one in a hundred, if I've done my math right, will really like to spend the time. And so I get so much strength out of that 1% that, um, that it makes it worth doing these presentations. And then things happen like what you did with me earlier, Chris, where, where someone will say, um, I remember your presentation from years ago. Mm-hmm. So the most, the most rewarding thing that that happened was I saw a, um, someone at, at some trade show. I don't know if it was a vision source meeting or, um, I think it may have been a vision source meeting, but nonetheless, this, um, this person came up to me and said, I, I can't believe I'm bumping into you because I'm here starting my new practice because mm-hmm. 10 years ago you were, uh, I heard you give a presentation and I said at that meeting, but within 10 years, I'm going to start my own practice because of what he's saying. And it's 10 years later and I'm finally getting it done. Mm-hmm. And that just blew me away. So, so those are the ones, you know, it's the one in a hundred that, that you actually move to, to longstanding action. Not just, not just putting, some, putting one change in place, but um, to continue working at it, you know, nonstop. You know how hard it is to, to yeah. work, to dedicate yourself to working on a practice, but to just to dedicate yourself and stick to it so that it continues to grow. That, that's enough to keep me going. Yeah, that's awesome. When you come in and, and do a retreat for somebody, I, I, I guess I didn't realize that you did that if you came in and, and did a retreat for a practice. So if I were going to have you come into my practice and, and kind of guide a, a retreat, would that always look the same? Is it sort of canned or, or what kinds of things would you want to know about our practice to sort of design that? And yeah. So examples of what, of what you've done in the past. So wh- one of my, um, my claims to fame, if you will, or one of the, the things that I'm most proud of is no, nothing is ever the same. <laughs> and we won't know how it's going to go really until we get started. So, so I feel like we've got a kind of a specialty in sort of improvising and how things are going to go because I have found that every practice knows what they need to do. We just need to create a uh-huh. format so that we can pull the answers out of them. And so, so it does follow a similar formats with every practice, but I don't go in with any answers. I don't go in with any ideas. I just go in. My favorite tool is a flip chart, mm. which is, um, you know, just a big legal pad, if you will. And we just get in there and we've got several exercises. So the first part is we use some sort of form to, to get sloppy and to make a mess because all of these ideas are going through. So typically I like to get a sense of what it is that this practice is, uh, you know, how it operates. So I like to watch the practice in operation for at least a couple of hours. 
Then I, but before the meeting ever starts, before I get there, I want to talk to the owner and I want to say, what is your vision for this practice? What kind of practice is it that we're trying to build? Again, getting a sense of where we're going, then watch it in action, at least for a little while. So we can see um, how that, how, where we want to be and where we are, how close that is. And then we get the whole team together and get sloppy. So typically that turns out some sort of brainstorming session um, where we just start asking questions that pull ideas and we put as much of it up on the flip chart and spread it out across the room so that everybody can see everybody's work all, the, all across the room and everybody has a chance to participate. And then depending on what we find, we just try to start sort it into a plan of action. And so we may group them into the five zones of a practice. We may group them into different departments, but we start trying to, to sort all of these ideas into, some, into a manageable task list. And then we start splitting those tasks out to the team, making sure that everybody has some tasks. And by getting everybody together, sharing ideas, giving everybody a chance to participate and seeing what everybody else does and what everybody else is thinking, that brings the whole team together and everybody is enthusiastic about um, working hard to accomplish whatever goals it is that the team together decides. That's, that's the overall message, but it, you never know how it's going to turn out. Yeah. So then once, um, once, once you come in and, and, and you do that, what sort of accountability um, is useful to kind of make sure that, that uh, you leave the office and they've got, you know, what, what kind of tools do you want to make sure that they're, they're continuing to do, or is there an easy way that people can kind of um, access some of your resources through that, uh, through that program? So that yeah. They so, so every single time we have to put some accountability factors in place. And again, it always depends on, on what the group needs and, and we put the accountability factors. Um, we, implement processes so that they can hold each other accountable. Um, so, so I like, you know, it, it always depends on what's available for the practice, but we got to find a method for them to stay in touch with one another. Um, I like weekly staff meetings. I like daily huddles mm-hmm. and I like periodic retreats, whether it's once or twice a year. And by retreat, I mean, shut the office down, get off site and just, make a mess um, as you try to figure out what direction you want to go sort of resort where you're going. So that's a method that I try to implement, but some practices just aren't able to do that. So we find a way that they hold each other accountable. And then we have a couple of follow-up calls as part of our retreat packages. Um, sometimes we log into one of those group meetings through, through some of these online programs, like what we're using now. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just a phone conversation with the, with the doctors. Um, but the more we can get together, the better to talk about it. So we just have a couple of follow-up calls, but it's, it's um, unique. Every single time the accountability factor is unique to whatever that group needs. Now, now you mentioned sort of accesses to, to my resources, and we do have some of that, Chris, but not as much as other organizations. And the reason is, is because I think that every practice needs its own resources that are developed. So I can show you my office manual. I can show you my scripts for contact lenses, but I, I hesitate to do that because I really want you to use it as a guide to develop your own. 
I don't want you to just cross out, you know, my, the name of my practice and put in your practice and, and, and do it. I really want you to use it as for ideas, but have your team sort of develop their own. Yeah. Well, when you, when you have your own, I mean, I think, I think that's what the challenge is, is that people want to, they want it to be easy, but you know, that's, that's the whole idea of give me a cookbook and I'll open it up and we can e-myth this thing. Right. Right. But, right. So they want it to be easy and they want to feel, feel like somebody else has done it. But I, I think part of the value of, of the independent practice is what you've talked about is that, you know, we might cater to, um, you know, a, a higher, um, socioeconomic clientele and patient base than somebody else. And so the way we would describe things in our practice might be completely different than the way that it would be described in a practice that um, is, is catering to um, a lower socioeconomic group of patients. And, um, and, and it might not, it might not work at all uh, to do those things in, in another type of practice. So figuring out what is going to work, um, you know, I think is, is a point that I've never, I haven't thought too much about until you brought it up. And I think that's really valid. Did it take you a long time to, to think through that and, and to see that? Or was that something that you kind of um, knew all along? Well, probably something, probably both, Chris. It probably, I knew it all along, but then it took me a long time to realize it at the same time. To, yeah. But I, one of my favorite phrases is that is man supports what he creates. And the logic of that is, is that if you, the more people you can involve in uh, coming up with an idea or, or a plan of action for your organization, the more support it's going to get because they were able to, to be involved in the creation. And I've always sort of lived by that slogan. And that's the whole idea of the retreat is to make sure everybody has a chance to participate. Um, and not, not just the loud mouths, you know, loud mouths always get to be heard. Um, and it's the, the ones that work hard behind the scenes that don't speak up as much. You got to create opportunities for them to be able to be heard. Um, so I've always had that mindset, but then at the same time, I, I tried to create these cookie cutter approaches and to share them because there was a demand for them. There was a, just show me yours, uh, so that I can see it. So I worked hard to create those. And the more I did it, the, the less satisfied I was with the results that, got, that you got from them. Um, a lot of people downloaded them, but very, very few people used them. Hmm. Um, so so I, I sort of had to reconvince myself that, that, that it's better if they create their own. Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> that, that, this is pretty interesting. I, I want to um, I want to be respectful of your time. Let's let's talk a little bit about um, when we're going to get you to to start a podcast of your own. Yeah. you know I've been blogging for years. Yep, um, and and really like writing and and you know Chris I during my time at Revolution I sort of quit blogging and um, and frankly can tell that I'm relatively rusty at doing it. I don't feel mm-hmm. like I'm I'm not as comfortable doing it anymore. I don't feel like what we're putting out is as good. Um, but I, I, I do enjoy uh, stopping, writing down my observations and, and what I think about it. But I've been thinking about creating new ways. Uh, the readership is, is relatively low. And I'd, I'd like to get, um, get going on, on doing a podcast. So, um, so I think, you know, I think the, the key with it is it's not as hard as people think it is. 
And, um, you know, I, I'd be excited to, um, help you work through the, through the process and, and kind of show you the tools that I use. And, um, and then, uh, I'd love to, I'd love to listen to a leadership OD podcast. I'd love to get started on a monthly basis. That'd be awesome. So I find myself rambling a lot, you know, and, um, and you can, you can clean that up a good bit in writing. Uh, just like you said, by editing, editing it out, but I don't, I don't know how that works. So, so maybe sometime we can get together and you can give me a lesson on, on sure. how I should do it. Sure. I, well, I think, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, is, is important is that like, you got to kind of find out the format you, that you enjoy. Like what do you, if you enjoy listening to podcasts, figure out the kind that you like to listen to and you should make that. I mean, so like for me, I, I love to listen to podcasts that are conversations that, you know, in particular, do you know who Joe Rogan is? Yes. So I, I really like listening to Joe Rogan's podcast. I, I think that, you know, um, the people he, he has conversations with are super interesting. Most of the time, sometimes they're a little weird, but that's one of the reasons I like to listen to it. And, um, and so I figure, well, if, if I like to listen to that, um, uh, then I, and I like to talk to people. I like to, you know, have conversations about what's going on in the profession. Then that's sort of what, what I'm trying to, to do here. And so uh, whatever, I guess my point is, is if you like a format, you just kind of copy that format and do it your own way. Um, so even if it's kind of rambling, like I've just done, um, it can be interesting. So let me ask you then, uh, cause you brought it up. And so, um, can you, can you, um, can you tell me kind of about the departure into revolution and, and, um, you know, how, how that came to be and, and those sorts of things, what you learned from it? Yes. Yeah, so I was, um, had, I built my practice, up. Uh, from nothing and um, and really enjoyed practice and enjoyed taking care of those patients. But as you, as you, uh, as we talked about earlier is sort of my, my interest level sort of expanded into helping doctors and their staff to sort of understand the business aspect of what they were doing better. And I was looking for ways to spend more time doing that. And so I had just about worked myself completely out of that practice. I was down to seeing patients one day a week and, um, and you know, just, just not doing a good job in the practice because I was spending so much time on, on other people's practices doing, doing really what I love. So mm. um, I was able to sell my practice to my associate who is ready to run the practice and go with it. And we talked about being partners and ultimately decided that you know, after going back and forth with her, that the best thing to do was to just sell her the practice completely. And she was nervous because by the time she had bought the practice, it was a pretty sizable practice. Hmm. And, and, um, and so we, you know, there were a lot of moving parts, but we had established those processes and many of those processes are still in place today uh, that we put in place. She has certainly made changes to make it on, make it her own, but, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's still run on that foundation that we built gradually over time. So anyway, so she was ready to buy the practice. I was ready to sell the practice and revolution EHR had just, um, started expanding into to other services that they were developing outside of their EHR program and, and wanted to develop a coaching program. And, and so they, they called me and, and talked to me about developing this program and, and working toward that. And it sounded really exciting, all the new direction that they were going, the timing was right. 
So I was anxious and excited to have the opportunity to join Rev um, mm-hmm. as they were going through this transition, uh, you know, as a, as a member of the team. And so we were, we were coming up with new ideas and, you know, ways to, to expand that program and, uh, and continue to grow it. And, and during all of that, um, you know, we just, I, I really enjoyed understanding how revolution worked hmm. and how all of their different uh, customers and how cloud based um, records, you know, what, what all that enables us to do, all the data that is involved with that, all of the uh, regulations that go yeah, along with that yeah. and, and how much responsibility comes with that. And we really expanded and developed the a coaching program, but ultimately decided that, you know, we, Rev needs to focus on its bread and butter and, yeah. and really taking care of uh, the program. And that's the direction that they're working on now. And I, th- I applaud that because I really feel like, um, you know, if you're going to be anchored by something, you got to make sure that it's really strong and, and taking care of that. And um, so, so during that time at Rev, I learned about data-based coaching through an internet uh, you know, just hundreds of, of data points that are just constantly being collected through our daily routine. You know, you mentioned the MBA program earlier, and that's great data, but it's all spreadsheets filled out by different people yep. analyzing different uh, software systems. But, but within Revolution, it's, all of those people are using the same system, and it's automatically being calculated consistently. So that, and it's real. That does not somebody else and putting another other stuff secondarily into a spreadsheet. Exactly. So, you know, I told you the story early on about what I did when I noticed that my numbers were not as good as I thought they ought to be. I just lied. Hmm. I just, yeah, <laughs> just, right. right. And I'm not the only one. Optometrists lie all the time <laughs> about how much money they make. Um, so, so, you know, it's, it's, it is very, very real, and there's a lot of great opportunity there. So I really enjoyed my time there. Um, but, you know, when, when it, my specialty never was the, uh, the core software in the middle of the program. That's, that, I'm not a computer guy. I'm a mm. practice management uh, guy. So, um, so when we decided that, that Rev needed to, to focus its energies on, on its core development, I just realized that I want to take leadership OD, try to turn it back into to what it is. So they were gracious enough uh, to, to allow me to do that. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, um, well Mike, I, I will be respectful of your time. We're going to have to continue this conversation uh, in the future. And I really appreciate everything that you've done for me personally and for our profession. And I also appreciate the fact that you took the time out of your night to, to come on here. Man, Chris, that means so much to me. I had more fun tonight than I, uh, than I imagined that I would. And I, I hope that we have an opportunity to do this again. That's awesome. Thanks. Thanks.